This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working building in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Need a professional place to work from? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Roger Berkowitz, President and CEO of Legal Seafoods. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Roger about the secrets to success in the restaurant business, understanding sustainable seafood, and we'll hear Roger's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Today, we're kicking off season six with more than 60 episodes under our belt. What? You haven't listened to all 60 yet. Well, conveniently in the world of podcasts, it's never too late. Search the list of past episodes wherever you listen to the show or go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash series forward slash inside dash Julia's dash kitchen. Some conversations that stand out in my memory include episode 58 with Esquire Magazine's Jeff Gordonier, episode 51 with Chef Ozma Khan from Chef's Table Season 6, and farther back, rising food personality writer and chef Samin Nosrat in episode 15, and food writer and historian John T. Edge in episode 11, talking about food, race, and American culture. As always, in our first segment, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. The pleasures of buying freshly caught fish at local markets, often from fishermen who'd caught them, was something Julia came to appreciate in France. Not only did it help her cook delicious dishes, her interactions with the fish sellers were an education about the ingredients and created a reverence for the vagaries of being reliant on Mother Nature for your livelihood. Of course, her first meal in France was famously Sol Meunier. Yep, it was fish that changed the course of her life. And in further serendipity, Julia had the good fortune of returning home to Cambridge, Massachusetts, home to legal seafoods. At the time, an established fish market selling high-quality fish. Already bristling against the commodification of food in American supermarkets, Julia's experience interacting with French fish sellers led to her becoming a regular customer at Legal Seafoods, even before they opened their first restaurant in 1968. So joining us today is someone whose life was also transformed by fish. An industry leader, and recipient of numerous accolades for his achievements as a restaurateur, community leader, and philanthropist, Roger Berkowitz is the president and CEO of Legal Seafoods and the son of its founder. Now operating more than 30 restaurants in five states in Washington, D.C., 
its clam chowder has become a staple of presidential inaugurations, and its restaurants are must-visit pillars of the Boston food scene. He joins us today to share Legal Seafood's success story, to correct any errors I made in that intro, and to share his insights on the ever-complex world of sustainable seafood. Welcome to the podcast, Roger. Thank you, Todd. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. So, I, And I'm excited to talk to Legal Seafoods, which over the years I've had the pleasure of eating in many times, um, although I've never bought fish there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's because I don't live in Boston. <laughs> so. you, you can get it online. Yes, well, come to that. I, I want to talk about how long you've been in business, because I recognize, and many of our rec- listeners would recognize, how difficult it is to be in the be- restaurant business for any long yeah. length of time. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, our, our roots really go back to the early 1900s. Uh, my grandfather, Harry, had a grocery store in Inman Square, Cambridge, called Legal Cash Market. Uh, he called it that because he used to redeem something called legal cash stamps, which were sort of the forerunner of the S&H green stamp. And he was a fanatic when it came to quality, mostly produce and uh, and meats, had nothing to do with fish. And he operated that from the early 1900s up to the mid-40s, a lot of competition with the new supermarkets that were opening up. And uh, they had a relative that worked for the supermarkets that uh, told uh, my grandfather, saying, you know, if you guys want to compete, you have to have some of the same niceties that uh, supermarkets have. And one of the things they have are fish counters. So my father thought, aha, I'm going to put a fish counter in the grocery store. Uh, unfortunately, the grocery store was only 2,500 square feet, and there simply wasn't enough room. So he ended up leasing the adjacent storefront, wanted to show the family tie-in, so took legal off a cash market and put it on to seafoods. So he had a retail market, and he opened in 1950, adjacent to my grandfather's uh, grocery. And that's really how we got started in the fish business back in 1950. And so how how did it transform from there? And I, I'm also really interested in, in sort of what you feel are the secrets to success, because to, to sustain one restaurant for any length of time is difficult, but to grow a whole group is, is extraordinary. Yeah, so it, 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 it's a good question. And sometimes the answer is not knowing too much. <laughs> and that's truly because if we knew too much, we would have blown it. And, 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 and what happens is, you know, it was, so it was two things, two pillars that I, I look back at in, in terms of the sort of the DNA of our success. Uh, and, and one is certainly the, the quality of the underlying, you never compromise the quality. And that was something that my, my grandfather drove home to everyone who worked with him. In fact, my father's older brother ended up leaving the, uh, uh, the grocery uh, business and ended up uh, at, in the meat business, and he was one of the people behind the Certified Angus Beef Program. So, so you, you had that, that DNA about quality there. And then the other thing is that I think in, in our case, it was a different mentality. It was like taking a look at what, why does the grocery business succeed and what do you have to do? And oftentimes it's what are you doing to bring people back to you to shop on a consistent basis? And now parlaying that into what you want people to, to do in the restaurant business. So we took a retail mentality and the, the good news, as far as we were concerned, is that we look back afterwards, we were learning the restaurant business. Back in 1968, when my father and mother opened the first restaurant, no one knew anything really about restaurants. It was only a handful of restaurants, at least in the Boston area, uh, where, where, where people went. And so we didn't we'd have a basic understanding of food costs. We didn't have a basic 
basic understanding of labor cost. Uh, and so we did just sort of what we did to bring people back. What would bring people back on a consistent basis? And it was uncompromising with the quality and, and uh, hopefully the hospitality. So we always think back, you know, that was really what we were doing. Uh, and even a few years after that, I remember when I joined the business, I remember having a dish on the menu. Uh, it was a lobster casserole. And I just simply could not believe how many lobster casseroles we were selling. And, uh, you know, finally, uh, I, I, I'd go back and when I finally figured out, I, I should do a costing on this. And I, I, we were losing $8 in every one I was selling. So, <laughs> so, you know, so again, sometimes, but had we not gone through and done some stupid things like that, uh, we may not have inoculated the culture that was to become legal seafoods. Well, I think you just made a great point that I hadn't been thinking about was that when you're starting about talking a restaurant business in 1968 and growing it until the present, there's been a huge transformation in the, what is the restaurant business, how restaurants are one run, and how consumers much more actively partake of, of dining out. So I'm kind of thinking that actually Legal Seafoods has kind of grown up along with the consumer in terms of that evolving landscape. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And the other thing is, you know, sometimes you're in the right place at the right time. So this is Inman Square, Cambridge. So what's unique about Inman Square, Cambridge? Well, um, you know, one of the things is that back in the, in the late 60s, mid to late 60s, um, there was a tremendous influx of Asians into the Boston Cambridge market. They were coming to Harvard, MIT, studying computer sciences, and they had really peculiar dietary habits. And much of what they consumed was fish, and a lot of it was raw fish. I remember being a, a 10-year-old kid behind the counter and people pointing to different cuts of tuna, and I'd you know, sort of wrap it up, and they'd open it up and start to, to eat it right in front of me. And this was well before sushi and sashimi became commonplace in the U.S. So you had that sort of impetus starting. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, again, then you had Julia coming on scene, moving in. And so it, she was the one that really popularized it. So she took something that Asians were eating and, and, and nutritionists and doctors are certainly looking at it and saying, hey, you know, lower incidence of heart disease, lower incidence of cancer rates, low, longer lifespans. And then you had Julia coming in showing people um, that you could indeed cook it very simply because up to that point, people only ate seafood for two reasons. You know, it was very inexpensive and cut the budget or else you were religious and had to eat it on Fridays. Mm-mm. And would you say, how, how much of your business are you still a fish company versus a restaurant? Ah, excellent question. So, so in the, in the uh, mid-80s, I went back to school, and there was a program, business program, uh, called Owner-President Management Program. It was for people who'd been out of, out of school for at least 10 years trying to figure out how to grow their businesses. And uh, we had a really curmudgeonly professor uh, by the name of Marty Marshall, who was very, very difficult, and he took great delight uh, in uh, cutting people's legs off. So if you ever saw the movie Paper Chase with the John Huston character, uh, that's what this uh, fellow Marty Marshall <laughs> was like. And so, and you I, mean figuratively, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, well. So, so I, I was one of the younger people in the class, and I, I thought, I'm not engaging this guy at all. And uh, so when I say I'm not engaging, I'm not looking at him, but he knows I'm not looking at him. So, of course, uh, I, was, I quickly became fodder. And uh, he asked me, he goes, Berkowitz, what business are you in? 
So I'm thinking, oh, boy, I can't blow this answer. So, uh, yeah, we're in the restaurant business. He goes, oh, you think so, huh? And he made me do a term paper uh, where I had to take a look at my business, past, present, and future. I was the only one that got this assignment. And we lived on campus three weeks a year for three successive years. And at the, this was between the first and the second semester. So after I, I wrote it, I did my research on it, and I handed it in. He goes, all right, Berkowitz, what business are you in now? He didn't even open it up, just waved it in front of my face. I said, uh, we're in the fish business. He said, ah, you did your homework. And, and so, I, so to that extent, uh, and I never forgot that lesson, uh, we have really been maniacal, really, on our focus on, on quality seafood, sourcing of seafood, handling of seafood, and that really is our, our DNA. I mean, so yes, hospitality and restaurants and, and whatnot, but the DNA is we source, we handle, we value add our fish. Uh, we don't go through a vent, we don't call a vendor up and say, send me 10 pounds of cod. And, and is that part of maybe the, like you said, underlying point of differentiation and secret to legal seafood success is that you're actually approaching being a seafood restaurant group in a different way than someone who doesn't buy and sell fish. No, no question. I mean, we are in the fish business, so we know we we know the last day's catch. No one is going to try to mix in product for us. Uh, we know who handles the uh, who handles the fish best when they're catching it, how they how they're gutting it, how they're icing it in. Uh, we also have a laboratory on site uh, at our at our uh, processing facility uh, where we test product. Uh, for purity and, uh, and 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 qualitative issues, so that if we were just in the restaurant business and said, "Hey, you know, let's focus on fish," that's a different business. We're in the fish business, and we happen to be doing restaurants. And so, on that note, and thinking back to Julia being an early customer, do you still sell fish to home cooks through a retail store in Cambridge or elsewhere? So it's interesting. We do. We have one retail market uh, in our Chestnut Hill location uh, outside of Boston. But uh, for the most part, I'm really transitioning that uh, to be uh, uh, more online uh, because I can, again, one of the things we've learned about seafood over the years is that the fewer times you handle it, the better the quality is going to be. And I had an interesting transformation, actually, because what, what happened is I had an old-style fish market uh, in Chestnut Hill, and I was moving to a new facility, and I thought, well, what would I do differently? What have I what have we learned over, over the time that would allow us to handle product better? And part of it was, you know what, in the, in a lot of people like going to fish markets and pointing out a cut of fish Oh, no, take a little bit more off. And what happens is the more you handle fish, the more the quality of it goes down. The more it's, it's exposed to ambient room temperatures, the more the quality of it goes down. So one of the things that I thought, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm gonna, we have, at our facility, our cutting facility, everything is refrigerated. So it comes right off the knife. We portion it at that point, and then I package it. So it, seem, it might seem a little counterintuitive in that how could packaged fish be better than 
you know, sort of these fillets. And I will tell you, it is a much higher quality. Initially, it took a little convincing of folks, but I think the best way of getting fish is having it, it, it making sure the cold chain hasn't been broken, packaging it immediately, and uh, getting it sent. So, so, so part of our business today is really sending fresh fish to people, uh, you know, packaged, uh, you know, through the air. Well, well, that's interesting because I'm getting stuck on the fact of, of, you know, the way I was taught to buy fish is very much with my eyes and seeing it. And there's that that very subtle thing of the the sort of gloss and sheen and kind of sparkle that fish that's fresher has that, that's already cut, obviously. Um, so I, I'm sure you're prepared for this question, but I'm also even thinking about the chefs listening to the program like you're really relying on your brand reputation yes. to be able to pull that yes. off, right? And we are fanatical about brand reputation. Uh, so we And we cannot be, be ever be put in a compromise scenario. Um, you know, one of the things that we've just come up with, because I, I am petrified of third parties uh, handling our product. Um, and we've had a lot of requests from supermarkets. She would love to have you. And, and it bothers me because if they don't handle it properly – if they don't keep it properly refrigerated, if they handle it too much, then the, comp- uh, the, you know, the quality is going to be compromised. So one of the things I've been experimenting with over the course of the last six months or so is something called Nitro Fresh, where, where I take f- fresh product at its absolute peak and, and, and then put it under nitrogen. And uh, usually it has a topping, whether it's salmon or cod or, 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 or shrimp. And then, uh, you know, you can take it and, uh, you know, put it in your freezer. It has a nine-month shelf life. And because it's done under nitrogen, freezes in a matter of minutes, uh, then you can take it out and then it, you put it in a 325 oven for about 30, 35 minutes, and it, it will come out restaurant quality. And that gives us a degree of confidence that people aren't going to follow it up. So I, I suppose it is a little counterintuitive to your point that people are, are taught to look at it, but we are in the fish business. I have to do that for folks and, and to make sure they're getting nothing but the top quality because I'm paranoid that uh, if we don't deliver on that uh, promise, then 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 the brand uh, suffers. It's interesting, but it also sounds like something that someone newer to being a fish seller would have trouble doing because it's kind of that familiarity people have with your product and reputation and firsthand experience, even if it's just dining in a restaurant, that they would need to have to feel like, oh, yes, I know I'm going to get something great that I've never seen. <laughs> Right. No, no, exactly. And, you know, it it takes a while to really understand how to handle fish, how to select fish, you know, um, uh, and that's really something that we've done, you know, over the years. And, uh, you know, it's something we continue to work at. I mean, we, we, it's, it's always, I always say it's a work in progress. We can always learn and do better. Well, I definitely wanted, before we go into the second half of the show and and talk more about fish itself, I wanted to ask you, and and this is something that probably fewer people know, because I think it tends to be more local market specific, but I could be wrong. Um, But humor has always played a role in in how you market the Legal Seafoods brand, particularly since you've been running it. So could you tell us a little bit more about like your perspective on using humor in um, marketing? 
Well, you know, it's it's interesting because you know, I uh, first of all, I, I you know, really when I look at at, at when we advertising, my kind of advertising is really to to continue to build the brand and so to make it recognizable. And I've seen too many marketing campaigns over the years where, you know, people say, oh, I have a good product and it's this, and it's sort of your eyes glaze over and and they're not memorable. And I think that good advertising, good marketing sort of stays top of mind. And, and, And I think humor is a good way of communicating that. Um, and and so if if your advertising or marketing tends to blend, I think you're wasting money. At least that's the way I look at it. And so uh, we've so we, we go out there. I think we uh, it's it's been described as we, we we sort of poke people in the eye. We're a little bit provocative. Let's see. Some of the ads uh, have been uh, we, we we encourage people to become um, uh, uh, pescatarians. Uh, but the way the ad was set up, it looked like we were asking people to convert from Presbyterians, and 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 if you were over seventy five, uh, you 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 uh, you got upset about that. But it got the conversation going and allowed us to get our message across. Um, we let's see, we've gone after an environmentalist in tongue in a tongue in cheek kind of way. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make it the ad look like it's an environmental ad. Uh, you know, save the salmon, save this majestic uh, fish for generations, or save it so that you can grill it and just put it on, you know, uh, you know, a, a nice plate with uh, vegetables. So, you know, we've had some fun. We've had people debate it. Actually, uh, it, it's been uh, debated on network TV whether the ads are appropriate or not. Uh, but it's, at the end of the day, it allows a platform for us to deliver the message on what we're about. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because obviously whenever you use humor, particularly if you use provocative humor, there's a certain element of risk. And um, it, But it sounds like you're saying the risk is worth it. Uh, for the most part, it is. Now, we did discover the third rail. Uh, of, uh, of of how far to push things at the last presidential inaugural, um, we uh, we we did touch the third rail and we heard about it. So we we actually did. Uh, I was running uh, the ad. The campaign was I was running as a third party candidate, and I pulled out at, at the end and I took out uh, an ad on uh, Trump. Uh, and, and, and it was a full page ad uh, in the Boston Globe and it showed, uh, you know, Trump, uh, make jesting, uh, with his gesturing with his hands. And, and the ad was, it's not the, 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 the size of your hands that matter, but rather the size of your shrimp. And, and so that, that <laughs> meant with, uh, you know, some humor, fine. And, and so then it was uh, for the DNC. Now, uh, let me just say ahead of time, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool uh, independent. So I, we do, I do not get my political feelings out there, nor do I want the restaurants, because we have to be, uh, uh, you know, right, at, right balanced, right in the middle. So then it was time for the, uh, the Hillary uh, uh, ad, and it shows Hillary grimacing, and um, and and it, it the the copy was um, we have a term for uh, cold fish, sushi, and uh, that apparently was the particularly in Massachusetts where the ads ran that was the line you know the third rail, and uh, we spent a lot of time doing mea culpas over that one. 
<laughs> so, so you possibly will not make a. Well, I'm going to stay away from politics election. right now. <laughs> yes, I, I'm. I'm sure many listeners are thinking about their own holiday and summer uh, meetings with family members on different different viewpoints of a similar situation. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, those are great, great pearls of wisdom. And uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to go on a deep sea dive with Richard. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718 362 3539. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. We're talking to Roger Berkowitz, president and CEO of Boston's Legal Seafoods, about running a successful fish business and navigating rapidly changing waters. So, Roger, I didn't, because you have so much industry knowledge and firsthand knowledge about the, the state of seafood in the United States and the world, because it's a global thing. I, I really wanted to ask you about it and, and kind of have a chat, because I think a lot of our listeners are interested in consuming it and figuring out what to consume and what not to consume or whether that matters and what to buy. So just give us a little primer, like how has the world of fishing and seafood really changed since you first started working the family business and how, how should we focus on it now? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's getting a little bit, in some ways, confusing, but in some ways there were also some answers out there. So it's not doom and gloom, per se. Uh, in the 80s, there was a lot of overfishing in the U.S. There's, there's no question. Um, uh, when the U.S. put the 200-mile limit in, into play, it pushed a lot of the foreign uh, vessels offshore, and that would have been one thing I think the stocks would have come back. But then the U.S., inadver- I think inadvertently, because they didn't really have um, uh, parameters in place, uh, they encouraged the industry to grow too quickly. And so what happened was uh, we were harvesting way too much fish at that particular uh, point in time. And, and at the 11th hour, a uh, moratorium was called and a quota system went into play uh, to bring the stocks back. And I, th- I think that was... Uh, 
that was very appropriate. Now, as it, the quotas were, were pretty draconian. And so the question the fishermen had over time is, you know, would the stocks, you know, the, they saw the stocks coming back quicker than what was being allowed. And uh, one of the things that got me interested uh, back then was um, how people did stock assessments. And the U.S. was not doing a particularly good job or a particularly good accurate job of doing stock assessments. They were using old, old data and old methodology for doing the stock assessments. And, and so as we got into the uh, 2000s, uh, it became apparent that they could do a, a, a much better job with the stock assessments. New technology was out there, uh, such as sonar, that could better identify the stocks. Um, and so the U.S. has been kind of slow to adapt the new technology. So you have that going on. Uh, but the stocks are actually coming back uh, to some degree. And uh, so you have uh, that dynamic going on. Uh, the other thing that's happening... Uh, is though, and, and this is unfortunate. Uh, I'm part of a a, uh, a a committee called Marine Fisheries Advisory Committee. We report into NOAA and uh, the uh, Department of Commerce, and so it affords me the opportunity to spend some time with the NOAA fishermen and say, "Hey, what really is going on here?" And uh, unfortunately, um, the the water temperatures were going to, it was going to take 80 years for the water temperature to rise from four to six degrees. Uh, that actually happened uh, in a 10-year period. And what's happening, so unfortunately, global warming is having an impact. The stocks that were around the New England waters, which used to be, and, and, and to some degree still are, but not in the, in, in the same way, uh, you know, sort of the richest fishing grounds in the world. That's why they have, we had all these foreign vessels offshore, and thus the 200-mile limit. Uh, but the haddock, the cod, the gracel, the flounder, those fish are now migrating into colder waters. And, and that's making it making sourcing a little bit more difficult. Certainly, it's, it's uh, having an impact uh, on the fishermen, uh, the, the New England fishermen. The other dynamic we see is that a lot of fish coming up from the south, like mahi-mahi, which is dolphin, that's, that's, a, that's a southern fish. That's a Florida fish. We see that now up around the Cape, uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I mean, at first that was that was an odd anomaly, but now you kind of understand with the water temperatures rising. Then other fish like croaker. So what's happening is that the cod and the haddock, the mainstay of the Massachusetts and New England fisheries, those fish are going up into Canada, if you will, and Nova Scotia and Iceland. So we have to go further or far to bring that, that, you know, that fish in there. So that's uh, a reality. Waters are, are in effect, uh, um, you know, warming up. Now, one of the plus things that's happening, one of the good things that the government seems to be focused on right now is how to encourage more fish farming and to how to encourage more fish farming in federal waters. This was never discussed or done before, and this is part of the conversation today. And it is being done in other countries. They, they, they farm or ranch, if you will, their fish further out at sea, and that's resulting in some tremendous quality uh, of product. So to the extent that we can get more fish farming, 
globally uh, that we have that, that we can source from as well, that's going to take more pressure off the wild stock and allow them to replenish. And so I think the answer going forward in the future is, is, is a balanced sourcing uh, between wild and, uh, and farmed. Yeah, I wanted to ask you that just, just, just because of your expertise in, in fish. And there's always sort of this, maybe amongst consumers, this idea that, well, farm fish is fine, but it's not as good as wild fish. What, or is it okay to buy and eat farm fish? Yes, or, it, know, yes. Was- so there are a lot of misnomers out there uh, about uh, farm fish. And I think, you know, early on what happened was there really weren't strict standards about um uh, farming. And so what went into the fish weren't strictly regulated. Now it is. And there are some just incredible examples of farm fish. And, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one example. It almost sounds like a sacrilege. But um, w- there is, so there's wild salmon from, uh, there, there used to be a wild salmon fishery on, in the Atlantic. There's no really longer, all the salmon out of the Atlantic now are, are farmed. Uh, Norway does a, a good job. Um, uh, Scotland does a particularly good job uh, of doing that. And, and we, we use the, as an example, we use the Scottish. Now, then there is the Pacific King. And what they do is they take the broodstock uh, from the king salmon up in Alaska, and they have been farming that in New Zealand uh, in the pristine waters. And I mean pristine waters. I've been out there to see what, what's happening uh, with it. And the fish coming out of those waters, and, and I will tell you, Todd, if I did a blind tasting with you and I put the, the king salmon that is farmed in New Zealand— Next to uh, wild king salmon, blind tasting, you would migrate towards the farmed every single time because the, 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 fu- the feed is so consistent. The marbling of the flesh is so consistent. The flavor profile is, is really consistent. And, and that really is, you know, I, I think one of the answers to the future. Uh, but farming has really gotten sophisticated in a good way over the last 10 years or so. And do you think you very eloquently touched upon sort of how climate change is, is affecting where seafood is, but you were also talking about the overfishing. Do you think ultimately, though, if climate change keeps on its course, though, that the natural natural or unnatural warming of the world's oceans, though, are going to ultimately deplete the supply of fish? Well, I, I think that um, if, you know, if the moratoriums continue— uh, and I, I actually, I think there's a little bit more fish out there, wild fish out there than is being reported. It's just not, you know, the, those areas are not being surveyed. So I think once we get a little bit more sophist- uh, sophisticated with the surveying techniques, uh, because, you know, right now, the, uh, a lot of the techniques, a lot of the sciences, uh, people go back and do surveys over the same area time and time again. Well, of course it's changed because the water temperatures changed. So it appears that there aren't the same number of fish there, when in reality there could be more. We just need to utilize a more sophisticated approach. So it, it's going to mean we, we harvest differently. We maybe then, you know, the, the boats may not be inshore where the waters are the warmest. They may be more offshore. 
And on that note, in terms of, you know, there was a big wave and either I haven't followed it lately or it's died down as you're talking about that that stocks have are, are not as in bad shape as there were. But this whole idea that, you know, you need to be if you're an educated eater and, and cook, you need to know which fish are OK and, and, and which are not. Is that still the case? And what fish should we feel safe buying and making? You know, it, it, it's very interesting because there's a lot of propaganda out there in terms of what you should and shouldn't be eating. Uh, Noah, the, uh, you know, uh, Noah has a, uh, a, a website up. It's, it's called uh, Fish Watch. And it talks about every, every species of fish out there and the state of every uh, uh, species of fish. Um, and, and to the extent that it's land, and people say, oh, you shouldn't eat this because, you know, it, it's not sustainable. Well, they have been in, in some ways, and you could say it's been appropriate, uh, you know, overprotective of the species. But if, so if it's being landed, you're fine to eat it. Uh, you, we might not agree on how much is being landed or how much should be landed, but if it's if it's an if it's haddock or cod, um, you know there's going to be finite amounts, you know that the moratoriums or the quotas allow for, and you'll pay the price for it if the if if the supply is less than the demand warrants. So whatever is being landed that you see out there, for the most part, and I really for the very most part, is sustainable. And just to explain, you're ultimately familiar with with what NOAA is and what it stands for. So, so uh, National Oceanographic uh, and Atmosphere. Uh, so, so NOAA does the um, you know the the, the satellite space uh, and the waterways. And probably this something fish else too. But I'm what they have on there that you refer. So it's called it just- Fish Watch, and it's part of their website. Um, is it noaa.org? Noaa, I believe it is. Uh, but it, you could go Noah Fish Watch, and it'll bring it right to the page, and it will go through every single species of fish you have a question about. But I guess you're saying, I assume some of that is relative to if you buy from a fish seller that has a good reputation or would you say even the major supermarkets for those who are not near or able to order legal seafood are they reliably selling i mean should you feel comfortable buying the fish that they're yes selling yes yes absolutely because uh, again it's it is uh, part of the pun legal to land uh you know fish that might not be a complete rebuild of of the stock but so what will happen is no one will say, okay, if let's say uh, it's, you can take um, 100 metric tons, there might be two or 300 metric tons out there, but they're limiting how many metric tons they're allowing to land. So if you see fish that is sustainably uh, harvested from a sustainable fishery, again, they may not allow for an abundance of it, but whatever's landed is regarded as sustainable. Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask you who, who you think should shoulder the burden for sustaining the world's fish stocks. And it sounds like you're, you haven't said this exactly, so I'm going to ask you, but you're kind of indicating that you think actually the government is doing a good job, if not too conservative a job. Is that yes. what you think? Yes, or? yes. I, I, you, you hit it right on the head, Todd. Yes, I, I think that our government, you know, the U.S. government has done a particularly good job 
of uh, stewarding what it what is landed. In fact, to the point of being overly conservative about it. I'd like to see them use a little bit more science to be a little bit more accurate. Because look, at, at the end of the day, I don't know if there's more fish or, or, or less fish out there. I'm not a scientist, certainly. Uh, but whatever is out there, we need to know. And then you know, we'll make our judgments accordingly. Maybe we up the amount of farm fish that we start to bring in uh, if, if we can see the future on this. Well, I think I'm going to stop us there because it's so rare these days where you feel like you're ending on anything, particularly about the natural environment, on an optimistic note. So I think I'm going to I'm going to take that from you, and 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 we'll move forward. So let me ask the listeners: Have you changed your seafood consumption to be more sustainable? Are you still bewildered by the amount you need to know to choose wisely? Despite those helpful tips from Roger, send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at JuliaChildFoundation.org and let us know what you think. After the break, Roger reveals his Julia moment. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we asked our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Roger, what's your Julia moment? Oh, gosh. You know, uh, <laughs> there, 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 there are many. I, I, she was really down to earth and um, really open to things. Oh, gosh. So, so I've had a, a number of Julia moments. One that I've really come to appreciate is the amount of influence she exerted out there. So one, one day, I think it was in the, uh, in the it was like mid-70s, I was down the Boston Fish Pier, and I saw a box of fish marked monkey tails. I thought, monkey tails? That doesn't sound appetizing. So I, I grabbed one of the, the workers down there. I said, well, what is this? And he goes, oh, you don't want any of this blank, uh, but we sell it to France for big money. So I thought, really? So I said, give me, ten, give me 10 pounds of it. Let me throw it in the case. So I put it in the fish case, and as luck would have it, Julia was by that day. And so I, I said, Julia, have you ever seen this before? And Julia said, lot, lot, which is the French word for monkfish. So um, she said, can you get me a whole one? And I said, yeah, I guess so. I didn't really know what a whole one looked like because I was only seeing the tails. So... Um, Yes, well, exactly. So if you've seen a monkfish, uh, you actually might have seen my monkfish because it took me two weeks uh, to convince a fisherman not to cut off the head. I actually had to pay extra money for that. Uh, we have this 25-pound monkfish that if you've seen a monkfish, to your point, it's, it looks prehistoric. It's all uh, head and cartilage and teeth. Uh, just an ugly-looking uh, specimen. But anyway, so we, we got her a, a, a whole one. She ended up putting it on her show. She put it in her cookbook. Time magazine did a picture and story on it. And so she really, in some ways, as an influencer, uh, you know, showed me you get it into the right channel. Overnight, that went from an underutilized or non-traditional fish to something that was on every good menu. Uh, in the United States. And, and she had that kind of influence 
uh, with people. She also took away the mystique of, of, of cooking being complicated, and you could do some very simple things to food. And she also really, I, I think, I credit her in large part for the renaissance of seafood uh, coming into the, uh, uh, in, into the United States. So she played an absolutely huge role. And the, and the other thing I'd like to tell you, a very quick story. Um, so she would, would come into the fish market, and she always towered above everyone else. And uh, there was a very opportunistic salesman in there at one point trying to sell me uh, onion rings, frozen onion rings. And I really didn't, wasn't paying much attention. So he went over to Julia and said, Julia, would you mind sampling my onion rings? And, and, and Julia said, well, all right. So he went back, we, we, we cooked them up, and um, uh, a little plate of them came out. And so she tasted them. And she said, well, well these are positively awful. And, <laughs> and, and I looked around, and the guy just evaporated. I never, I never saw him again at, at that particular point. But she called it as she saw it. I mean, she was very straightforward. And uh, I'll always respect that about her. Yeah, she saved you from the awful onion. <laughs> Those are great stories. Well, Roger, thank you so much for sharing them and sharing your insights and joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Todd. It was a pleasure. Likewise. And thanks, everyone, for joining us as well. Now, surely, you're already keeping up with us on social media. So ask your friends to follow us too. Search at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. Better yet, send them a link to this episode. So visiting Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, or D.C., maybe you're already listening from there. You can go to LegalSeafoodsWithAnS.com to find a location near you. And as Roger said, they do mail order. Check out shop.legalseafoods.com. And you can also check them out on social media. Search at Legal Seafoods on your favorite app. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lawrence Alkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network. Today, it's Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. If you do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, all the better. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.